Here we go. Today is Sunday, February 18th, 2018. This is episode 211 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Good evening, Jerry. How are you, sir? So good it hurts. How are you? <laughs> I'm pretty good. I know you've been crazy busy, which is why we've last missed a couple of weeks here and there, and we do apologize for yeah, that. Yeah, I had uh, I had terrible jet lag going to to uh, Dublin, and then I had terrible jet lag coming back. So, well, so how how was bad. Ireland otherwise? Uh, Ireland is is absolutely beautiful. The the people there are awesome. Um, you know, it's 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 a really great place. I would I would like to be there when I'm not working, um, but I I worked a ton. I actually didn't really have a whole lot of free time when I was there, but. Um, Great place. Highly recommend it. A plus. Would visit again. Yeah. <laughs> cool. And then, uh, and then speaking of that, speaking of travel, yeah. we're uh, yeah. we're we're going to uh, Bogota in a month. Can you believe it? Less than a uh, month. Like two weeks, buddy. Two weeks. Oh, that's right. Two weeks. That's crazy. I should really do my talk. Yeah. That's. Um, I should probably probably work on that, huh? The, so the, tactical edge. Bogota, Colombia. That's right. TacticalEdge.co. Be you there or be square. Separate and unrelated keynotes. Because mm-hmm. apparently we're not allowed to do a shared keynote. Nope. <laughs> but your keynote is all about this show, so I might have to hang out in the in the background and heckle. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, and so that's exciting. I, I'm looking forward to that trip. I've never been to South America. Oh, so, neither have I. And all the other speakers are phenomenal. So it's sort of, I've, I definitely have some some imposter syndrome going into this show, thinking uh, I am not worthy, but I'm going to do my best, and hopefully I won't embarrass myself too badly. And the show, just a just you know, reminder that you're also representing the show. So. Oh my God, the pressure. <laughs> anyway, uh, if, you're, if you're able to go down there, uh, it should be a good time. Uh, if not, I, uh, you know, maybe next year. So uh, just a reminder before we get into our topics for tonight that the remind, uh, <laughs> let's try that again. The thoughts and opinions we express on the show are ours and do not represent those of our employers. And uh, and also one more call out to uh, our Patreon donors. Thank you very much. Uh, definitely appreciate your generosity. Yeah, you guys are amazing. Thank you. All right. So, um. You know, it's it's been a an interesting couple of weeks. Uh, the obviously the Olympics started, and there was a fair amount of uh, you know hoopla about a cyber attack, and we I still need to get some music for the you know, cyber attack. Dun, dun, dun. Something ominous sounding. Uh, so, so there was an attack on the Olympics. It you know apparently. It was not the most devastating attack ever. Um, it, it apparently did disrupt their website and ticket sales for a period of time. And also, interestingly, uh, disrupted the Wi-Fi in, uh, in, in the, uh, the main venue f- for the opening ceremonies, which I thought was 
strange. I don't know how those two are linked, but uh, anyway. Hey, man, look, I'm not saying I went to the lowest bidder. <laughs> yeah, I'm saying yeah. it worked great in tests. <laughs> it did work great in tests. So, um, so what, what, what we have here is a story from Bleeping Computer. Title is Destructive Malware Wreaks Havoc at Pyeongchang 2018 Winter Olympics. And that we, we actually have three different stories talking about three different angles of this thing. So so this one describes the the actual malware. Um, it I would say it's it's very similar in many respects to the NotPetya worm. Um, it didn't you know the, the the payload was a little different, but in terms of the propagation, it was very similar. There's no indication yet how it actually uh, how it was actually delivered initially. So it's not clear if it was done with a NotPetya style, you know, software update type thing. But in terms of propagation, once it was inside the network, it was apparently very similar. It used, um, you know, used a, a, a version of Mimikatz or something like Mimikatz, I'm guessing w, uh, Windows Credential Editor, to uh, to pull passwords out of LSAS and... Um, you know, it was trying to propagate to other hosts on the network by looking at the ARP table and and uh, you know, leveraging WMI and PS exec and blah blah blah. So nothing too revolutionary. I mean, pretty common stuff. Yeah, I mean, so it kind of sounds like they may have taken. Uh, and in fact, uh, some of the some of the other scuttle was is it it much more closely re- resembles the bad rabbit malware from a couple of months back. Um, you know, then that. You know, that there was an attempt to make a big deal out of that, and it just really didn't ever go anywhere. Uh, but apparently, this this particular malware uh, pretty closely uh, rep, uh, resembled Bad Rabbit, so it's you know it's not clear if the techniques were copied or if there was actual code copied. But um, wait a second, are you saying that people can copy techniques and code, and that attribution is fuzzy? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. Okay. No, no. So, um, yeah, anyway, uh, so, so that kind of dovetails to the next story, which comes from CyberScoop. And the, the title here is uh, ATOS. I think it's called ATOS, pronounced ATOS. ATOS, IT provider for Winter Olympics, hacked months before opening ceremony cyber attack. So ATOS, I had never heard of them, but apparently they're a pretty large IT provider, uh, was... Uh, the official cloud provider of uh, of the Winter Olympics. Wait, so this is the lowest bidder? I, I guess. I don't know. I mean, we don't know. We I mean, maybe it's somebody's nephew. You just don't know, right? I mean... No, I'm not... Look, I know you're trying to get a suit here, like you usually do. They can be <laughs> perfectly fine. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so anyway, I, I'm, I'm not... Definitely not passing judgment here, but, but apparently what, uh, what has come to pass is some enterprising security researchers found in VirusTotal a piece of malware that uh, that actually you know was that same Olympic destroyer uh, you know code that I just described and you know what I what I actually neglected to describe was um, that uh, so I needed to, to to walk back a little bit here and say that there what there was an important difference on this particular piece of malware that as it 
gathered credentials, it actually created new versions of itself with the credentials hard-coded into the new version. So basically, it would infect a host. It would try to it would try to interrogate LSS to find uh, you know, clear text credentials. If it found them, it would create a new version of the binary, and then it would try to push that binary to other hosts on the network. And so now that you know that new infector had the benefit of those those credentials that were gathered from the previous host. If only there was a programming technique to like link an external file like a DLL or something with this new information. <laughs> I know. I know, right? Anyway, I, I'm yeah. just I'm just being silly at this point. We have the technology. Um, so, <laughs> so anyway, the the the, um, the these researchers, and I, I I'm not clear if it was. Uh, Cisco Talos or somebody else, but anyway, somebody found in VirusTotal uh, some some versions of this Olympic destroyer malware uh, hanging out with credentials hard coded belonging to Atos, uh, hmm. and and uh, you know so so then the next apparently the next time we we find or we hear about this particular piece of malware is in the context of the attack, the actual attack on the Olympics, which by the way, I also didn't describe what the malware did. Probably should have done that, but you know what? It's Sunday and I'm tired and cranky. So it, it did malware things. It did malware things. It um unlike unlike not Petya, it it did not pretend to be a piece of ransomware, you know, it didn't give you a Bitcoin address or anything dumb like that. It deleted volume shadow copies. It um you know it, it wrecked the ability to start the computer into recovery mode and uh, kind of nuked uh, parts of the Windows operating system and then shut it down. The, the idea being that, um, you know, once, once you turned your computer back on, it was basically unbootable and they had taken some steps to make it really hard to, uh, to get the, the so system back one, up and running. One could speculate this was purely to make the Olympic Committee in South Korea look bad. Correct for the, for the lulls, as they say. Yeah, yeah, and so so you know there. So clearly, <laughs> that means it must be North Korea. Obviously, what other so could it be? Obviously, so it's that, uh, or, or or Sweden or or Luxembourg. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, so um, so yeah, the that and by the way, it's, that that kind of <laughs> is a good lead into. The third story, which comes from bankinfosecurity.com, the title is Attribution Games Don't Rush to Blame. I'm going to admit, I read ahead. I knew that was coming. <laughs> I, I I am trying to work on my segue skill set. It was, that was a nice job, Mr. Callett. Yeah. And now, right up front, I'll admit that I rally against attribution on a regular basis. So I personally was quite happy to see the story. <laughs> Ah uh, yes. So um, you know, so, so they they point out here that attribution is kind of uh, in the eye of the beholder. So if you're South Korea, you know, ev everything that comes your way originates from North Korea. You know, and, and if you're the U.S. government, everything comes from either Russia or China, and you know, and and so it goes. And they they point out in here, by the way, that you know that that. Um, in the past, we've had kind of, you know, 
airtight attribution, like in the wake of the um, it, the sanctions the U.S. imposed on Russia because of their actions in Ukraine, there was the big attack on J.P. Morgan Chase, and everybody was, you know, hell bent that this was the act, you know, the actions of the Russians, and it actually turned out to be two Israelis and an American, you know, who were down in Florida running a pump and dump stock scheme. I can I can see how that could be confused. I mean, that's very similar. <laughs> it's almost the same thing as the Russian I mean, government. I, I, it's almost the same thing. I mean, you got to cut them a little slack here. And and they have that's, a quote. They have a quote in here from uh, from Jeffrey Carr, who I I really like this quote. <laughs> it says, uh, "Jeffrey Carr is long cautioned that behind every attribution, there's some type of motivation: a vendor trying to sell a service, lawmakers pushing a political agenda, or a breached organization trying to deflect blame for its information secu- security shortcomings." I I completely agree. I. I personally have said over and over again, as a tactical and sometimes strategic infosec person, I don't care about attribution. It doesn't do me any good one way or the other. I, I, I don't care if it's coming from Bob in HR or a couple of Israelis in Florida or the Russian government. The problem set is still the same. And the, the variability of the technique and tactic is such that it doesn't matter what, I mean, okay, yes, I figure out, I positively attribute this to Canada and I blame Canada. It doesn't mean they're not going to change their tactics. It doesn't matter to me. Now, it might matter at an executive level, might matter at a legal level, might matter at a law enforcement level, but to folks like what we do every day, I really don't care. And I find attribution a distraction and a waste of time. Yeah, so I have heard some reasonable arguments in favor of it and and about the only one that really resonated with me is if you have some inkling and by the way i think this cuts both ways so we'll talk about that in a second but if you you know if you have an inkling of who's behind the attack now you're you're absolutely right that you should be you know you you should be dealing with the attack not trying to figure out who it is but you know if 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 you know who the attacker is and you know about their other kinds of capabilities that may lead you to, you know, heightening your, you know, your monitoring program or your defensive posture in a way that would anticipate other known tactics that that adversary is, you know, is, is known okay, but to use. But there's no monopoly on TTPs. I, I agree. I'm, I'm saying so, and, and, so y- so, your defensive set should be accommodating new common TTPs regardless. Yes. If I got if I got advance notice that you know Kuala Lumpur was coming after me again, yeah, again, and I knew how they did things. Sure, like oh, they like to do a DDoS, and then they like to go after this, and then they send phishing. Then I could adapt my posture to look for those specific TTPs. But the fact of the matter is, you rarely, if ever, know that. Right. And the the problem set is the same regardless. So. Attribution after the fact is really what most people do. And I get I get that there's a whole lot of politics around this. I get that there's a whole lot of deflecting of potential blame. I, very much so right now when these massive breaches happen and we have letters from from people like Kevin Mandia saying there's nothing you can do against a nation state attack. So it's in a com- com- tr- uh, company's best interest to say this was a nation state attack and we think so and so did it. But – you know, that is 
that's politics. That's not what we do most of the time. I'm not saying politics aren't part of our job, but I, I honestly believe that that is a, a damage control issue after the fact. No, I, I think you're, I think you're right. Uh, and, and I would also say that I, you know, what, what I was say, talking about before, I suspect most organizations are not at a level of maturity where it, it really makes sense to be focusing on that. I mean, that like we all have a lot of basics <laughs> that we could be doing a whole yeah. lot better in I, investing I, in rather than, you know, trying to hone our executives. Uh, I agree. I think executives, senior, senior executives and boards have kind of fetishized this idea of figuring out who did it. And I think that's a mistake. Yeah. Well, you know, it, at, at the end of the day, you, you know, you got to, uh, part of it's probably the popular culture, right? But you got to put yourself into this, into the position of a CISO or a CIO. You know, your company's just been breached, and you're going with your hat in your hand to the CEO and the board. And you know, what's the first thing they're gonna ask, or maybe the second thing? It's like, how bad is it, and who did it? I, I get it. I get that they ask. I purely understand that, and I think we've got a whole bunch of the industry feeding it from a vendor standpoint and a consulting standpoint, feeding into that ask. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I don't, I still don't think it's a very useful ask. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. So anyway, um, I, you know, I, it, it's completely unclear who did this, right? It, it there's, Across the three articles, there's kind of an under undercurrent of acceptance that it's a nation state, right? So even though you know all three articles talk about you know not jumping to conclusions, you know it's it, the discussion is not around you know was it um, you know was it a, a private person or you know it's no which country was it you know it's, was it North Korea, Russia, China, uh, you know, who, who, who was it? Um, you know, I, I think, and we've talked about this in the past, I think especially given that this particular piece of malware is using, you know, very well-established techniques that other pieces of malware has used in the past, mm -hmm. this is not a complicated thing, right? You don't have to, you don't have to have nation state level resources to They're pull off in old days right yeah, you, yeah this this wouldn't need to be perpetrated by a country and and, well, and that's the but, problem well i'm gonna play my own devil's advocate it sure as well could be a country it could there's, be but, but this is what i'm saying there's nothing unique about the about the techniques that we're talking about here that make it one thing or the other but the bad guy whoever the bad guy is only has to be good enough to achieve his goals True. And it could be a very basic attack. It could be a complicated attack. But none of this is outside the reach of two you're, Israelis and a Russian guy, right? Your average good pen tester. Right. Or, or, or even weaker than that, because I think pen testers have a ton of skill set. Um, you know, but then again, we've also seen nation states do unsophisticated things. My point is, you can't tell, in my opinion, purely by the TTPs. Yeah, I guess where where I was going with my thought before I was rudely interrupted was um, <laughs> <laughs> was, was that you know that the the 
the innovation because I, I I think these tactics were largely initially innovated by uh, you know by people like the NSA you know with with Eternal Blue and and then uh, and then Wanna Cry you know obviously that wasn't NSA right but the the point is when nation states are off innovating and then launching attacks using the tools that they've created I think the whole the whole concept of attribution goes out the window. I mean, it becomes immensely more complicated because now, you know, the tools are out there and, you know, that you got a lot of smart people and, and it's, it's not hard to take these, you know, these ideas and tactics and turn them into something new that, you know, is, is kind of tangential to what was used before. And, and that's my, that's my big concern is, you know, f- from a, it kind of like the 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 discussion about blaming Russia for the the attack on J.P. Morgan. You know, we're we're making an assumption that a lot of people are making an assumption that these things are are highly sophisticated attacks, and and in fact, a lot of them are highly sophisticated. But because of the you know because of the evolution of technology, that doesn't mean they're you know they're out of the reach of you know of, of a of a private citizen. Right. So. Anyway, that's because we have empowered the average person with supercomputers in their home. That's that's very true. And the internet has has democratized intelligence, also and true. knowledge, and wisdom, and I don't know. I'll stop. Yeah, let me know when you're done. So, anyway, enough on that. I'm I'm sure there'll be more more to say in the future as we as we learn more. But so moving on to our next dumpster fire. Which which just continues to keep <laughs> giving. The, show. the weekly dumpster dumpster fire review. Meltdown Inspector. Uh, we <laughs> the title here is uh, from ZDNet. Meltdown Spectre flaws. We found new attack variants. Say researchers. Yeah, this doesn't surprise me, given the low level nature of this bug. That other people will get clever with it. Yeah. So so apparently some researchers have come up with a model they can use to, uh, to to take in the characteristics of a CPU so things like you know characteristics about the you know the actual processor co- processing cores and the cache and whatnot and and it craps out um, a, you know ways to <laughs> ways to exploit uh, you know the, the meltdown inspector style attacks and so using that they came up with, what they call meltdown prime inspector prime and the point is not necessarily that these are you know radical additional uh, techniques but the you know the more the point is that there's a there's a whole class of bugs here that are relatively you know now that we know they're there they're you know they're probably going to be relatively easy to uh, you know to, to uncover and in fact, you know, this, as they pointed out here, they've they've got some tools to help do it automatically. Which is an interesting common trend. We we somebody gets very novel and produces original research around some new class of problem or bug, and then a whole lot of other smart people start exploring the edge cases or or uh, companion territory to that bug or nearby, and find a whole bunch of other stuff. So this is something we see as a trend when somebody finds a, you know, like free after use when that was sort of 
came out of the scene, suddenly a bunch of other people found free after use type bugs. So it's interesting how this the research kind of follows these sorts of uh, endeavors. And I think we'll see more of this. Indeed. Uh, so. So anyhow, um, apparently with these these particular bugs, the the current mitigations, current software mitigations uh, that are are being released for actual meltdown and actual specter apparently are, are relatively effective against this meltdown prime and specter prime. But the, you know, the, the, the author of the article points out that when a, when AMD and Intel and other processor manufacturers are, are kind of re-engineering their processors to it, you know, to, to try to mitigate this, they probably need to be more holistic in their, in their thinking. And, you know, this is a, this is a mess. I mean, I, I, um, but I mean to be fair, hindsight's always twenty twenty. It's signal in the noise. It, right? it this class of problem will probably never happen again. But these chips have gotten so complex. I, somebody somewhere had a a ratio of lines of code to bugs, and probably there's some similar ratio of number of transistors and microcode in their dies to bugs. Right. When you look at how complex these chips are, it's inevitable that they're gonna have bugs like this maybe not exactly like this but i mean expecting them to be flawless is i think unrealistic especially with the price points they're driving and the innovation rate they're driving i just i think it's unrealistic to expect them to never have a problem yeah well it's i mean it's it's certainly true they are absolutely incredibly complex and you know we don't have the story here, but I did see a headline earlier today that that uh, Intel currently has 32 lawsuits filed against it in relation to uh, Meltdown Spectre. Yeah, that'll be interesting to watch how that plays out. And most of them are class action, as I recall. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> you, you 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 probably are seeing the an artifact of the way the legal system here works, right? Everybody, right. everybody wants to be the lawyer that leads that class. <laughs> so they're all, they're all jockeying for a pole position there. But this goes to the fundamental question that a lot of people have had over the years is why don't we hold manufacturers accountable to security bugs? And it's, I mean, that's a broader debate than we have time to get into on this show today, but it's, this kind of starts to talk to that in some ways. Yeah, and I this is a this is a difficult thing because um I mean it, not only has the has the response to this been just really unfortunate. I mean it's 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 uh I I worry by the way if something like this were to happen and it were to be a much more serious vulnerability. I mean not not that these are trivial vulnerabilities, right? But you know they're not remote code execution type yeah, bugs that, in all cases, right? That's your privilege showing right there, buddy. <laughs> well, I guess my my point is if 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 you had a um, let's say a shell shock style uh, yeah, you know, bug yeah. and, and Un unauthenticated remote code execution, yeah, and and you and sure. and it required this kind of coordination. Holy God, we would be in bad shape as a as a society not just as an industry um but you know back to your back to your point i don't know what intel would do i mean like you it, it's it's it can't be economically feasible for them to go 
and produce replacement produce and distribute replacement chips for free and continue on as a going business like i mean i've got to believe if they were mandated to go and 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 provide replacements like it would be cheaper for them just to go out of business yeah i I mean i think the closest we ever saw this was something like the the pentium math bug yeah yeah Uh, you know but that was a different time and a different impact in some ways but they had to recall that entire line and they made keychains out of them actually I think I have one somewhere. <laughs> but, you know, we're kind of getting to an interesting point, I think, in computing, where some of these CPUs, I think, last much longer in production than previous era. We've got so much power now that, especially for general purpose business computing, I think the upgrade cycles have slowed down. I, I certainly think they have. I mean, it's that definitely seems to be the case. Uh, you know, we're we're just not seeing the radical, um, you know, both increases in in performance, but also in in software. I mean, I I think <laughs> I think the OS manufacturers are having a hard time, uh, you know, s- slowing things down enough uh, I- with each successive uh, generation. Not that they do that intentionally, you know, but anyway. Uh, I I mean I I think we'll be talking about melt we'll be having meltdown stories probably this time next year I would I would think so yeah I think I think really until we turn over the CPU architecture yeah which which by the way there isn't even going to be an alternative architecture that fixes this until earliest as I understand it fourth quarter two thousand eighteen yeah it takes time. Yeah. So anyway, uh, moving on to our next story, which comes from the uh, this is a a news release from the uh, University of Indiana or Indiana University at Bloomington. Thought this was was pretty interesting. Title here is to prevent cyber attacks. Paper suggests agencies similar to National Transfer Transportation Safety Board. So I thought, you know, this one would kind of get you going a little bit that the the. this is a paper so that you, was now you just pick articles purely to yeah yeah absolutely elicit reaction from me yes so this entire show has to you personally trolling me uh, you know i w- i don't know that i would like say it exactly that way but yes but yeah okay um so so anyhow th- a couple of a uh, couple of smart people at at uh this particular university put together a paper which recommends creating the uh, National Cybersecurity Safety Board, which would would follow similar in structure and mandate to the National Transportation Safety Board. And the idea would be that uh, there would be a team of people who investigate breaches, figure out what happened, and you know this would be separate, as they point out uh, in, in the in the report. It would be separate from any findings of fault. So, like uh, in in a, you know, I should say legal determinations of fault, right? It would it would basically try to to figure out what actually happened for the purpose of trying to make the industry more secure. So it's an interesting concept. Um, I think the problem is, and you know, the paper's not very long. It's it's only. I think 18 pages, half of which are 
a background on the NTSB and how they came to be, and another third compare the uh, uh, what what they're talking about to the uh, to the uh, the Columbia investigation board. So, so the actual meat of it is is relatively wait as short. in the space shuttle Columbia as in the space shuttle, yeah. Okay. And the, and the the reason that they actually brought that up for a, a valid point that um, the Columbia investigation wasn't solely about the technical fault. It was also uh, it also investigated the organizational failings, as did the Challenger uh, yeah. accident board. Yeah. Yep. I'm I'm guessing that the challenge that the, the these are all youngins that weren't around for that. So all right, fine. <laughs> I don't know. Um, anyway, no, but but I mean, not to take away from your point. Yes, a good investigation looks at not just the technology, but the people and process and culture that led to that situation. Absolutely. Right. Right. So I, I on its surface. I think it has some some challenges, but it seems like a good idea, except for a couple of uh, a couple of things. You know, it, it, this would be similar, I think, in nature to trying to create in the U.S. like the National Car Crash Investigation Board, right? Which good idea, absolutely mm-hmm. great idea. But which of the you know ten thousand crashes a day <laughs> would they investigate? The, the, yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I get where they're coming from, and I know a decent amount about what the NTSB does. Uh, but it's such a different world, and and the problem is it's not that we lack knowledge about what causes these issues. Typically, these issues happen because there was a conscious or unconscious decision about some sort of risk tolerance. Uh, and some sort of decision of how something was implemented. I really don't feel that these are mysteries. The, the, the challenge is how do we find the balance between being able to get business done and keep things secure? Uh, you know, I mean, unless, unless we're talking about investigating O-Days, but I, I, I'll be honest, I think the manufacturers have a pretty good handle on, wow, somebody got popped with an O-Day, let's go figure out what happened and put a badge out. Uh, also, I think when you look at the NTSB and its mandate and its mission and, and the way that it interacts with, with uh, you know, vehicle, rail, and air disasters, most people know it from the air situation, you're dealing with a fairly finite number of components to compared to general computing, right? I mean, let's say in the U.S. there are probably less than 100 different variants of commercial aircraft flying right now. I'm, I'm making that number up, but it's probably like that. If you look at all the Boeing aircraft, all the Airbus aircraft, all the Embraer aircraft, all the Can- Canadian regional jet aircraft and the other various sundry manufacturers, there's a relatively small amount. So most of the time these days when, when, when they're investigating an accident, it's rarely a, a systemic technical fault with the, with the airframe or with the aircraft. And if it is, it's fairly quickly fixed. And, and usually their recommendations, the NTSB has no authority, but they make recommendations to the FAA and the FAA enforces that if they choose to. But when we try to compare that to general computing, the airlines are so heavily regulated in how they operate. None of that exists in general computing. So 
you take that sort of mindset and you come back and I mean, I think they're going to be so flustered because, well, this happened because this company needed to make sure that its executives could access its data anywhere on the road. And the executives didn't want two factor authentication because that was a hassle. So they used uh, easy to guess passwords. And I mean, they're constantly going to be coming up against cultural challenges that we, I think already understand. Right. So I don't, I don't know. I, I don't disagree that this is, useful to do root cause analysis in a non-political way but i also think a whole lot of businesses unless you change liability laws and you started giving them a get out of jail free card uh for engaging in this process i don't think most businesses would open their kimono to this yeah i i, I they, they talk a little bit about that and you know maybe tying it to some kind of availability of insurance you know so so similar in concept to like a flood you know, flood insurance program. If they uh, if they participated, I think some of the you know some of the issues and you you started to touch on it a little bit is the just the pervasiveness and abundance of different not only devices but permutations of how the devices are used. Um, in not not even talking about you know again how, how do you decide what you're going to go and investigate. I mean, that's, that's a, a problem yeah. unto itself, but um, you know, one of the concerns I would have is, you know, like in, with the NTSB, you know, somebody's flying in their Cessna 172 and they crash and the, and the NTSB goes and they investigate and they find that, Oh geez, there's some bolt that after 20 years of stress, you know, weakens and needs to be replaced. And so then, you know, they, they put out a bulletin and everybody has to go get this bolt replaced so, so now the National Cybersecurity uh, Review Board goes off and they find a, uh, you know, that there's some faulty component or some faulty piece of code in a, in a like, thing. Like, let's just pick on WordPress. Yeah, right. And, uh, and so by the time they get the report out, you know, that particular thing has been out of service for, you know, a year. <laughs> like, and, and it's gone. Likely, yeah, most, yeah. Maybe, or it's still lingering on routers for the next twenty years. Well, yeah, but point is, you know, I, 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 I think in the air, in the, the aircraft are durable things, and IT technology is not. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in terms of, of length of service, sure. Uh, and I think things change so fast. I, this, it's, it's, it's such a dynamic environment in IT that um, it's really tough. You can, the recommendations, they become so generalized and so watered down because everybody's setup can be different. And unless you're going to start mandating, you know, commonality of, of, of environments. I, that, that is the only way I would see this working, um, to be, to be quite honest. And part of me wonders if we were to fast forward 20 years from now, is that what we'll end up with? I mean, are, are we... You know, is that a preordained thing just because we, we're on an unsustainable path? Well, if we're going to go that route, I would get away from general purpose computing and go to thin clients or, re, you know, uh, VDIs that rebuild every mm-hmm. you know, hour, mm-hmm. right? It just, uh, you know, move away from the, the flexibility that causes all these problems. Sure. Sure. So I, I could probably if I thought about this for a while, I'll come up with a whole lot of other examples and I'm not trying to just shut down this concept. I just, there's such different worlds. Yeah. I, and I, I still come back to, you know, what, 
what where would they where would they engage you know it, w- would it be the you know the the equifaxes and and you know well or, you you could see some value for that if you go for the mega breaches yeah and then and then have a a non partisan neutral third party investigate and report on the mega breaches but they're so wrapped up in lawsuits and other fines and compliance issues i don't know that you would ever get the the openness you would need for them to get a really good uh, factual opinion i think it would be it would be very it would be very difficult that's for sure because everything is going to be shrouded in attorney client privilege and you know all, all that stuff um but you know, at the same time, it, it's it seem it just seems intuitive that there might be something there. And I would also say that if we if if we were going to do this, that the review should not focus on the technology as much as on the business process, because the technology changes pretty frequently. And I think the more interesting failures that you would, you know, you that the that the you know society would benefit from is identifying you know the organizational failures right more than the techno the technology failures okay but let's say you have the next step we identify the organizational failures and then the next organization looks at it and goes yeah but we're different <laughs> i know i know i mean that's that's the that's but the problem we have yeah. to do it this way because blah 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 so i i guess I don't I don't think that it's a bad approach to do this sort of rigor. I guess I'm just thinking through it to the end result of a lot of companies going, yeah, but that doesn't apply to us. Right. Which defeats the purpose. But I think it'd be inter- I mean I, I think it'd be interesting if you could truly build a nonpartisan, non biased, non agenda driven neutral third party with enough expertise to go in and truly dissect with a full knowledge set what caused these breaches, we we could learn stuff. But I don't think we'd be that surprised either. I think I think we often know. I mean, Strut's vulnerability. We know that about Equifax, right? Now, they could, I imagine a lot more of their findings would be about the culture and the failure of exactly. the process. Exactly, the, right. Uh, yeah, why did they not patch it? Why, you right. know, what, what, what failed there? And and you know, uh, uh, you you raise an, an interesting point. There, there's there's not a lot of incentive for compliance or for for really taking any action. And in the in the report, they they spend a couple of pages talking about the GDPR, right? And the GDPR is a is the, the new European Data Protection regulation and you know it has some pretty significant fines and so i'm not you know it they didn't they didn't come out and say it right but there's there's probably something there if um you know if if you got this really gnarly weighty fine looming over your head maybe companies would be more because i I mean to be quite honest companies are are kind of lost in the wilderness with what to do in terms of the gdpr and and so, you know, this might be an opportunity to drive some, uh, you know, some kind of clarity on. Okay, well, you know, if you if you fall under the GDPR, 
you know, now you need to, here's something you have to be aware of. Like you got to run your, you got to have a change management board that does X, you know, t- to avoid the, the Equifax style thing. So yeah, anyway, that's interesting. It's, it's a, it's yeah. a, it's a very coarse thought, but. Um, no, it's, you have an issue. I think if, I think if we're at the end of a, if we weren't late on a Sunday, I probably would have more coherent, interesting <laughs> things to say on this. I need to noodle on this one a little while because you know, there's certainly a lot of value that comes from the NTSB. It's just I really struggle with how you apply it to the crazy Wild West world of of InfoSec. Indeed. All right. Well, that is the show for this week. And, um, you know, we, we should we should have a, a normal schedule for a couple of weeks before we, I guess, head off to Bogota. <laughs> Uh, and then, uh, then who knows what will, go, what will happen down there? I think we actually will be recording a show, uh, if I'm not mistaken. That's what that's there. what I'm told. I think I think with uh, with Martin. Yeah, yeah, that should be pretty cool. It'd be good to work with a real professional. Hey now. <laughs> anyway, uh, you can find links to the stories we talked about on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lurg. You can follow me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And uh, with that, we will talk again next time. Thanks. See you, everybody. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.